Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Jason Sorens. Jason is a research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's a political scientist by training, and his works include the books Secessionism and Freedom in the 50 States with William Ruger, and more than 20 peer-reviewed journal articles. His research has focused on housing policy and land use regulation, fiscal federalism, U.S. state politics, and movements for regional autonomy and independence around the world. He has taught at Yale, Dartmouth, St. Anselm College, and the University of Buffalo, and founded the Free State Project as a graduate student. He lives in Amherst, New Hampshire, and he joins us to discuss the Free State Project. 
Some of you may have heard of it. It's a, an attempt to make New Hampshire into a beacon of liberty. And I find it a very interesting project because it's built on the foundation of the idea of secessionism, which I think is something that uh, people who are into liberty and freedom, it's, it's a very important concept to understand. And I think it, it, it is the foundation, perhaps, of legitimate political organization. And I think uh, it's Ludwig von Mises who discusses this. And I discuss it in my uh, forthcoming book, Principles of Economics, which will be out in a couple of months. When discussing political arrangements, the key concept for Mises is, is the right to self-determination. Is, is it possible for somebody to say, no, you know what, I don't want to be part of this, and then being able to back out of it? I think this is an enormously important part of political arrangements. And Jason and the Free State Project are um, taking this approach to the question of liberty by essentially forcing the question onto people by presenting the secession of the free state as a kind of ideal. And I, I believe it's a very interesting topic, and I think we have a lot to learn about it in the fight for liberty in the 21st century. So I'm really happy to have Jason on board. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Hi, Safe. It's great to be here. So let's begin a little bit uh, by talking about you and your background and um, what got you into libertarian ideas and what got you to care about freedom. Yeah, for me, it really started in high school. I was uh, sort of a, a garden variety conservative, and I got into a, a an economics club after school called Ten Pillars of Economic Wisdom. And we read, uh, for me, the, the red pill was actually Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Then it just went from there, Mises, Hayek, Milton Friedman. And then I really got into the philosophical side. So in college, I read Rothbard. Robert Nozick, uh, David Friedman, and briefly became an anarcho-capitalist. I would not consider myself that now. I'm more of a minarchist, but definitely came across this term libertarian, got active in libertarian politics. And then what really changed uh, in graduate school was coming to realize that libertarian politics would never work at the national level in the United States. And that was a, a depressing realization at first. And then I came across this idea through my dissertation research, really, this idea of focusing on a single state, and that's where the Free State Project came from. So, well, lots to talk about here. So um, I guess we could just start with, you said you're not an anarcho-capitalist anymore. I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, so let's get into that. Why aren't you an anarcho-capitalist? Why are yeah, so you a statist? To, <laughs> <laughs> to me, this is a, a little bit of a, of a kind of Hayekian position, which is that to posit some sort of uh, ideal political order is to think that we can, through our reason, design society. And so that's a kind of rational constructivism, in my view. So it could be that anarcho-capitalism would work. We just don't know. We don't have the, the evidence for that. Yeah, we, there's Somalia out there, but it's, it's really hard to apply lessons from, from Somalia to, to present-day high-income countries at the technological frontier, right? So it, it's, it's possible, but uh, my view is that we know that, we know that more freedom works in, in all these areas. So let's move on all these areas toward more freedom, and let's find how far we can push that. Um, and it could be that we could push that all the way to privatizing everything and having a complete competitive free market and injustice and things like that. I just think we don't have the evidence that would suggest uh, that, that that could work. So, so out of humility, out of intellectual humility, I say, 
I'm more of a minarchist, but but let's see where this can go. Yeah, I see. I if I were to offer the counter argument, I, th- I think that's a good point. The idea that anarcho capitalism seems like it is almost a utopian top down design that let's make a society built on everybody uh, respecting everybody's property rights and no governments, no rulers. To an extent, yeah, I could see how it might appear uh, similar to a communist in its idealism, perhaps. Um, but if I were to make the kind of uh, Hayekian argument for anarcho-capitalism, you know, based on the same premise, even though Hayek himself was not an, an anarcho-capitalist, I'd say, you know, if you look at Hayek's work, what he says is he distinguishes between top-down central planning versus order that emerges through the application of basic abstract rules. I think this is really the, 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 the enormously profound concept in Hayek's work, the idea that things emerge out of human action rather than human design. Mm-hmm. And uh, his conception of a free society is what emerges when people follow a few simple set of abstract rules that apply to everybody. And then when everybody is able to interact based on those rules, everybody has the certainty to expect that others interact with them based on those rules. What emerges is something that is beyond our ability to design. So I would I would perhaps make the argument that anarcho-capitalism is an application of a simple abstract rule, which is property rights, uh, personal individual sovereignty and property rights, and that it's it's more of just uh, let's uh, let people decide what they want to do with their own property rather than uh, let's impose a kind of system on them. I mean, I think you, you, you might have a point perhaps when you look at many of the anarcho-capitalist authors like, say, uh, Rothbard or Friedman, David Friedman mm-hmm. or Hoppe, a lot of their work contains um, – what appears to be speculation about what a free society would look like and the defense companies would be bundled in with the insurance companies. And perhaps I guess you could, you could mistake that for being a kind of vision of how we want society to be. But I would say it's, that's, that's more speculation rather than it is, you know, we need to do this and everybody needs to sign up for an insurance company. It's just speculation of what would happen if we had a, a free market order. So I don't think there's that much disagreement, unfortunately, for us. Yeah, no, that, that is a great point. And just to relate this to, to what you started the episode with, if we apply the right to self-determination all the way down, then effectively what we have is is what the anarcho-capitalists want, right? It's a, it's a spontaneous order. It may be that what a lot of people want is to have some amount of territorial government, right? So it could be very local, could be very limited. But if we apply that right to self-determination, then ultimately we're going to get the legal orders that actually serve people's needs rather than simply serve the interests of those in power. Yeah, and here I think uh, one very interesting idea, which may not be that popular in libertarian circles, but I think it deserves a lot more uh, study and scrutiny, is the proposal in the book, The State in the Third Millennium by Prince Hans Adam of Liechtenstein. And uh, he presents a very interesting conception of the role of the state in the third millennium. And the entire book is grounded in the concept of self-determination and the right to secession. And his idea is... 
I guess if I were to summarize it, I'm not sure he would summarize it that way, but if I were to summarize it as look at your laptop, you know, the reason that Dell and Apple and Hewlett Packard and Lenovo make all these amazing laptops that you buy from is not because you're on the phone with the CEO every day and telling him, hey, you know, um, please make the keyboard like this and make use this thing for the screen. You don't get any input into any of their decisions. It's not a democracy. None of those things are a democracy but you have the right to use them or not use them. And so because they're out there just trying to get you to buy them, buy their goods, and because they can't put a gun to your head and force you to buy their goods, they have to be really, really good at figuring out how to make these goods good for you. And I believe, I think, I think he makes a compelling case for why perhaps this is the role of uh, princely and royal families in the 21st century as being a kind of, a family business that uh, has managed to survive for centuries. You know, if if you find yourself living under a monarchy that's been around for a few centuries, they know a thing or two about running a place. You know, the fact that they're still in power suggests they have some kind of track record in this. And I think, you know, what what he suggests is the idea that uh, people should just be free to join those unions. And so, for instance, in his in his case in Liechtenstein, it anybody or down to the local level of uh, Liechtenstein is a tiny country of a uh, few, I think, forty thousand people, fifty thousand people, something like that. And yet, within that country, all the local communities can secede. They can leave the country, or they can join Austria or Switzerland, the neighboring countries. They have that right to secede from the country, and it's it's a very interesting dynamic. So, for instance, I think it was in two thousand and four. I'm not sure there, there was a campaign to try and legalize abortion in the country, and this is completely uh, sounds insane when you think about it this way. But the way that the prince reacted to this was, they said, "All right, we'll have a referendum about it, but." Um, I want you to know that if you vote for abortion, for the legalization of abortion, then I will quit as prince and I will leave Liechtenstein. I will move to Austria, I think, or Switzerland. I can't remember which one. But he was just going to sell his castle, leave the country. And basically, he gave the people an ultimatum and saying, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stay in this job, but you can't do this thing, which I don't like. And the referendum failed and he's still in uh, power. And in fact, um, you know, the political reform in Liechtenstein has moved toward giving the prince more authority and taking more power away from the parliament. And I think as long as you combine that, obviously, with the right to self-determination and the right to secession, there's a nucleus of an interesting idea there because maybe people will prefer to go with people with a track record. As you said, I think there's there's a compelling case here, which is you know, so a new corporation comes along and says, yeah, we're going to provide you with security and we're not going to have a government. It sounds interesting, but again, it does contain the element of uh, we're central planning and we don't know how these things work and we don't know why and how the world is going to deal with those uh, complex emergent phenomena that will emerge from this. So maybe sticking to the tried and tested royalty might be a better solution. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. 
Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, as long as you have very small-scale polities where there's abundant choice of jurisdiction, then that works, right? You don't need um, necessarily democratic control of the government if the government is, is weak and limited to begin with because there's competition among governments. That is one vision of the future. Now, how do you make sure that the overall uh, framework in which those governments operate remains free and competitive? There, you probably have the governments themselves creating some structure, right? So it could be a, a, a more sort of loose version of, say, the European Union or something like that, where it's a club of governments. We make sure we have free trade. We make sure we have free mobility across borders to maintain that competitive structure. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is uh, this is probably, I think, realistically how I think we're likely to see more and more freedom in our lifetime in, in, in this kind of marginal direction, which builds on existing structure rather than attempts to just scrap them all and go start from scratch. Although, who knows, you know, with Bitcoin, <laughs> never say never. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I as a as a political scientist, I'm skeptical of any uh, claim that technology alone is going to fix this, because politics is always there, and you've got to find a way to uh, to keep the technology away from politics, because we've seen historically that rulers who feel their power under threat are perfectly willing to destroy an emergent technology that could have immense benefits to their people if it's a threat to their power. So we need to have a political strategy that is going to secure freedom for the long term and not just rely on on technological developments. Yeah, if I were to um, if if I were to make the counterpoint to that, I would say that politics as we know it is the product of government control of the printing press. Uh, politics as we know it is a product of the centralization of money. The fact that with fiat money and even with gold before that, you had to centralize the money in one central location. Every town had a central bank, uh, had a bank, and every country had to have a central bank. And that central bank was the unit that allowed you to trade with the rest of the world. So you could not take part in a modern economy. You could not benefit from the division of labor and from the massive increases in productivity that are brought about by the market economy unless you had to go through your central bank. And that was a centralized institution. And that allowed whoever was in charge to have enormous amount of power over everybody else. And that creates all of the insane drama that we know as politics. So in a sense, I don't think it is a political solution in as much as it is the obsoleting of politics. It's uh, Politics is, I guess, if I were to think about it from a technological perspective, politics is 
the uh, paraphernalia attached to running the money printer. And when you get rid of the money printer, you get rid of all of these things. I think th- this th- this would be my argument for why I think Bitcoin is truly revolutionary and is more than just you know a, a political solution to a problem. It's more than that. It's 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 more the obsolescence of a problem. It just obsoletes the entirety of the problem because we no longer have to fight about a money printer. We no longer have to fight about who's in charge mm-hmm. of the central bank. And in fact, fighting about those things just means you're wasting your time and you're giving up on satoshis and you know the bitcoin blockchain is continuing every 10 minutes there's a new block and every 10 minutes you waste on doing anything that's not productive that doesn't get you more satoshis anything that's trying to take control of other people just means you have fewer and fewer sats left in the future (laughs) right (laughs) that that is a great point but I'll, i'll amend it with one addition which is i think Governments are not just a machine for printing money, but also for 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 harvesting taxes, right? And so that and, and Bitcoin is a potential solution for that in in the sense that it helps you avoid surveillance, right? So, um, so financial freedom, freedom from surveillance these are these are uh, wonderful attributes of the technology, but they're not foolproof in my view. You need people who are going to support you. And people are going to to help you uh, realize um, the potential of the technology. Yeah, I think so. Right, and so that's that's the advantage of a of a kind of a liberty community, a community of people who who share that that vision, those values, um, and it, that's how you get an, an alternative economy. That's how you get um, a kind of way to escape from from the long arm of politics. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, you see this, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, Bitcoiners discussions on Twitter and on podcasts. There's, there's the very strong meme of the Citadel, you know, the Bitcoiners are going to build the Citadel. Um, because, you know, the more time you spend in Bitcoin, the, the more you value freedom, and that in turn results in finding difficult to associate with, uh, as we call them, fiat people. Um, I think once you, once you deprogram the money printer and everything that the money printer taught you, and you take out that force from your life, then you start seeing things differently in all kinds of seemingly unrelated aspects of life. So you become more libertarian, you see less of a role for government, you start distrusting government dietary advice, you start trying out eating like a human being for a change and you right. enjoy it. And so, so we see these themes, they're very common and we see that Bitcoiners, they gravitate toward each other. I mean, you go to a Bitcoin conference and it's it's refreshing. People enjoy it so much. I see this over and over and over again because you know most Bitcoiners are in their day to day. They're surrounded by no coiners. They're surrounded by fiat people, and they're surrounded by people that are watching the news and you know um, reacting in the way that the news wants them to because their fate is tied into the fiat establishment, which puts them the news, which which gives them the news. And so, you know, being able to interact with people that are similar to you is enormously, enormously valuable. And I think particularly for people who have families, you know, who do you want your children to grow around, the kind of influence that you want to have around your children, this becomes a very important question. And this is where I think the Free State Project is uh, truly interesting and uh, fascinating example. So now tell us more about that. So we, we got into your background how you got into those ideas. So then what brought about the idea of the Free State Project? Well, I was doing my dissertation on secessionist movements around the world, and that got me thinking about the idea of uh, of states as important 
political sphere still in the United States, right? We're still a federal system, uh, despite all the centralization that's happened over time. And so could libertarians identify the best state for them, the most libertarian state, uh, the state where they could have the, the best influence, move there and push for greater self-government and self-determination and create a free society. And I ran some of the numbers. It seemed like this is actually something that could work. And so I, I published an article about this in an online journal called The Libertarian Enterprise. About 200 people emailed me right away saying that they wanted to get started. And it went from there. And we had a, a state selection process. The first 5,000 people who signed up got to vote on our state. And we, we picked the Condorcet winner. Right. So a bunch of bunch of libertarian nerds. We, we chose what we thought was the best voting system to, to choose as a single winner. And that ended up being New Hampshire. And and uh, it was a wonderful choice. It is the most libertarian state in the United States. The governor at the time supported us. He was the only governor who actually tried to recruit us uh, to choose the state, uh, had the biggest libertarian movement of any state at that time. And since then, people have been moving there and getting active and uh, getting involved in the political system. And we've seen some big wins for liberty. A real prospect, you know, this is a, a long-range project. You, you can't expect to, to move to New Hampshire and be free tomorrow in the, in the sense that we all uh, imagine. But um, you will find immediately a big liberty community in the state that you can plug into, including the longest running Bitcoin meetup in the world. And uh, and, and you can be a part of a, a historic effort to to create a free society. Um, so that's that's where we are right now. Yeah, I think one of the most common objections that any kind of libertarian idea gets from statists is the idea that, look, it hasn't worked in the first 15 minutes. So clearly it's never going to work. I mean, Bitcoin gets this all the time, which is, look, you said you were going to turned down the global central banking system and it's been now 10 years and you haven't done it so clearly you're never going to be able to do it and i think there's something similar with the new hampshire uh, free state project which is i mean it's still part of the union you guys still pay federal taxes so clearly you failed right <laughs> yeah you got to have a little bit of patience if you're going to achieve anything in this world especially given how slowly government systems react compared to private systems, right? And so we are we are building a body of work here that has slowly but surely advanced the needle and we are becoming freer. Whether you look at education freedom, uh, if you're if you're a parent, this this is a big one for you. We've got we've got school choice. You can you can send your kid to a private school and the, the some of your tax dollars will follow your child. Marijuana decriminalization, uh, bail reform, criminal justice. I think reform. I think New Hampshire was one of the first states to decriminalize marijuana in the U.S., wasn't it? That's right. We were also, I think, the first state to to legalize same-sex marriage through the legislative process. Now, of course, that's nationwide, but you, you get an indication here that not only is it a, a low tax state, so no state income tax no state sales tax, one of only two states of which that is true. But it's also a state where people are socially tolerant. Um, and so it's, it's really uniquely positioned uh, as a place where libertarians can be effective and be a part of the, the culture. Yeah. And when you say socially tolerant, I think a lot of people have this conception of libertarianism as being about, um, you know, there's that famous sticker, which is, you know, you, you want gay married couples to protect their marijuana with their own guns. 
And there's a kind of idea generally that associates libertarianism, I think, more and more with social liberties. When I think, you know, realistically, I think there's also a very strong conservative take on libertarianism, wherein, I mean, libertarians don't want you to go to jail for smoking weed, but they also don't want to smoke weed. Uh, or, you know, they don't want to be part of uh, society or you know, they'd rather not live in a neighborhood where um, smoking weed is uh, celebrated and normalized. They'd rather have their children grow up in a place which shuns those things. They don't want to put you in jail. They don't want to ruin your life for it. They don't want to aggress against you because it's a nonviolent thing. But I think people mistake this idea. I think it's a statist mindset in general, which mistakes the which which cannot see a gray zone between either oh, supporting one, something and taking part in it or you know wanting it banned and wanting the people who do it to throw it to be thrown in jail so I, my example that i like to give for me is baseball like i don't like baseball i have no intention of ever playing baseball i've been once to a baseball game i couldn't finish it didn't enjoy it but you know that doesn't mean i think baseball players should be thrown in jail it doesn't mean i think it should be criminalized uh, i i i you know, I'd rather my kids play soccer because uh, that's my sport is the one that I enjoy. I'm going to have a lot more fun playing with them. But, you know, that doesn't the, – the, the, there's a huge gray area, which is, I think, what civilization is built upon, wherein, you know, we don't have to all like baseball in order for baseball to be legal. We can enjoy baseball if we want it, and we can choose to ignore baseball if we don't want it. And so I'm wondering, how much would you say is um, the kind of – culture of New Hampshire uh, or the free staters, how much is it uh, of a kind of libertarian social liberal view versus it's a live and let live and it includes a true diversity of, you know, um, not just people who want to smoke weed, but people who want to be, uh, who don't want to be close to weed or all all of these other various uh, social issues. Yeah, so I'm very much on the on the uh, conservative side of the spectrum there uh, myself. So Reason Magazine even did a forum on a on an essay that Will Ruger and I wrote advocating something called virtue libertarianism. Uh, and I would even say that there are cases of ac- uh, actions that I would consider to be immoral and wrong that nevertheless should not be illegal, should not be punished by force for consenting adults. Um, so you know, one one example I like to use here for for religious people in particular is. You know, what, what is the worst offense you can possibly imagine if you're, say, a Christian? Well, it would be, it'd be denying Christ and, and denying Christianity, right? Because for some conservative Christians, that would mean you go to hell. But should the government ban that? Clearly not. Clearly the government cannot prohibit you from, from disbelieving your faith. That would be uh, incredibly unjust. So even something that is, that is deeply uh, morally offensive to you uh, can be something that nevertheless you should be free to do it so long as you aren't uh, violating anyone else, else's rights. And I would say that um, in the Free State Project, it's extremely diverse. And that is one thing that you will find. Uh, if you move to New Hampshire, or if you visit, so Pork Fest is coming up in June. We get about three thousand people at, at the annual Porcupine Freedom Festival every year, and and you'll find a, a, a diversity. So you will find people who are more into social liberalism. If you wanna, if you wanna try mushrooms, you're gonna find your crowd there uh, and be able to do that. But also, if you're a parent and you wanna have kids activities, and you you want them to be safe from from the the drug stuff and the 
you know, the, the sex stuff, you can do that as well. And I'm, I've always been perfectly comfortable bringing my kids to, to Porkfest. And so it's really an interesting environment because you can plug into whatever subculture you're interested in uh, from the anarchist, Satanist, trans person who ran for sheriff <laughs> to all the way over to uh, Hoppians who uh, who want to, you know, physically remove themselves from uh, <laughs> from anyone who uh, might be gay, for example. <laughs> right. So you get everything in between, everything in between, right? And and so I'm I'm not all the way over to the far right either, but it's it's kind of neat that you can find your niche, and the the movement is big enough that you can do that, right? There are something like six thousand plus free staters in New Hampshire at this point, so um, so you can find your club, and in fact, it's impossible to to know everyone to know everyone in the movement because there are so many now. Um, so that's, that's the advantage. And, and the, the hope is, and I believe this is what is happening is that we're all working on the freedoms that are important to us. And that means that freedom is advancing across all dimensions. Right. And I may, I may disagree with your tactics or I may disagree with your lifestyle, but I'm going to let you do what you, what you do. And hopefully we, we learn from that. Right. And, uh, if you fail, then that's a lesson for the rest of us. And, and we, we know what doesn't work. And so over time, there's a selection effect where strategies that don't work fall out and strategies that do work advance. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, this is really the key point uh, that most people miss about libertarianism. It's also something that I try and emphasize in my book, Principles of Economics, when discussing how a free society could provide for security. And I think, and I go into like a, a, an elaborate thought experiment of using the example of drugs and that you, on the one hand, you can make the argument that, well, a free society would allow everybody to have their freedom. And so you can smoke whatever you want and you can consume whatever drugs you want. However, on the other hand, a free society would also not be able to compel people to live and, uh, interact with people that are like that. And so it is possible for you to opt into an arrangement that is voluntary, that involves you not interacting with people who do drugs. And I think, you know, uh, think about think about the institutions that you would want to be part of, whether it is your kid's school or uh, even think about it, your, you know, your security provider and the insurance company that you deal with, all these things you could join organizations that explicitly make their rules about not tolerating any particular kind of behavior. So you could join a group that says, well, you, could, you could join an insurance company that says, I guarantee that where you sign a piece of paper, a contract that says, I will not consume these substances. And if I do, and I am caught consuming them, then I face these kind of punishments. And you do that because you want to be part of a group that doesn't do it. And I can see the case for it. Perhaps for weed, although more likely for other sort of stronger substances, perhaps maybe for alcohol and harder uh, drugs, you could see why, you know, I'd want to be only part of an insurance company that doesn't insure people who drink, because that's going to mean less accidents that are going to be taking place, less domestic violence, less uh, of all of the problems that are associated with alcohol or the problems that are associated with marijuana or with all kinds of other drugs. And so you could see how a socially conservative place might actually, in a free society, end up practically banning alcohol, even though it's not criminally enforced law in the sense of the state will lock you up if, you, if you're caught drinking. It's you know, through voluntary arrangements to the people that are in this 
part of the country, in this part of the world, they agreed to rules of conduct that just make it not likely for them to ever come across anybody who um, takes part in those things. And I think it, it's a deeper understanding of freedom when you think of it as it's not just the freedom to smoke weed. It's also this freedom to be away from weed smokers if you want it to be. And I think the market can provide for that. And you don't need coercion in order to let people smoke weed and you don't need coercion in order to um, be free from people to, uh, who smoke weed. You could have all of that provided consensually. Right. And and so I'm, I'm a fan of the sort of, you might call them 19th century bourgeois values and this kind of idea that you should suffer the natural consequences of your own bad decisions. And that that could mean that you lose jobs or you lose friendships or you pay higher insurance premiums because of your your lifestyle. And that itself is an incentive to adopt kind of sober habits, habits of, of honesty and hard work and things like that, that lead to success for all of society. And what we've done as we've become wealthier is our, our hearts bleed for people who who make bad decisions. And so we end up subsidizing those bad decisions by trying to, to cushion the blow. And as a result of that, people end up making more of these bad decisions. Just look at the, you know, the overdose crisis that, that we've been dealing with for the last decade in the United States. You know, this, is a, this is an effect of people feeling as if there's, there's always going to be a, a safety net there that's going to, uh, to protect them from the, the consequences of their own bad decisions. Um, you know, as hard as it, it may be, we need to kind of steel ourselves to the notion that that is not a role for government. Maybe it's a role for, for private charity, um, but even private charity, you know, the advantage of private charity is that it is conditional and it is discretionary. And if you don't fulfill the terms, then the, the, the charity or the whoever's helping you out can withhold those funds. And so there's, there's, in a sense, more accountability to actually make good decisions if you're relying on private charity rather than government. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a big problem that we now face with the welfare state. Oh, absolutely, I agree. And I think one of the dangerous ideas of uh, w one of the many dangerous consequences of the idea that the state enforces morality, that the state is out there telling you what's okay and what's not okay. I think it's it's really dangerous because it for many people it just replaces their moral compass with mm -hmm. law obedience. And so if you in, instead of trying to think about what's right and wrong, you just mm -hmm. think about what's legal and what's illegal. And if it's legal to do something, then it's okay. And if it's illegal to do something, then that's not okay. And it's, you know, the, uh, to go back to my baseball example, it's, yeah, well, baseball is legal. So obviously we have to go watch the baseball game. And obviously we have to play baseball every weekend because it's legal to play baseball. But it isn't. You don't have to play baseball. Just because everybody likes baseball doesn't mean that you have to do it. And, you know, obviously the examples are more serious than baseball for moral issues and uh, for behavioral issues. I think this is, this is a serious issue in that people just go along with what is legal, assuming that if it's legal, then it's okay and that you're protected from the consequences. And they are, they've separated, I think law and statism have separated or I should say legislation and statism, have separated the concept of natural consequences and replaced it with legal consequences. So you don't smoke weed because you go to jail if you smoke weed. Now, once weed is legalized, then you smoke weed because you can't go to jail if you can smoke weed. But lost in this entire legality debate 
is the idea whether you want to or should do it yourself because of the consequences that it has on you. You know, do you want to be a weed smoker? Do you want to suffer the implications of that? What are the implications? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Most people don't think of these things in these terms. They think of them in terms of just, will it get me in jail or not? And it's, 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 I think very dangerous because it just um, infantilizes adults. It's your, 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 well, I should, I should say it's, it, it infantilizes children as well because this is also not a healthy attitude for children, which is what schooling does for you. You know, you, you go to school and you just follow the rules and you are told that if you follow the rules, then everything's going to be all right. But of course, life is a lot more complicated. The teacher's not always right and the school's not always asking you to do the right thing and you have no alternative to using your own mind and trying to think for yourself. Yeah, and there's, there's a flip side of that, that problem too, and I entirely agree with you about uh, losing our sort of independent judgment. But people who do have a modicum of, of individual judgment and they see, for instance, that, oh yeah, the, the government lied about the harms of weed, right? They're, they exaggerated them significantly. A lot of a lot of young people then go ahead to say, well, you know, they probably lied about heroin too. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be okay with trying trying that, right? So, so there's we're we're not drawing the line in the right places, and we're we're not um, we're, we're sort of encouraging even riskier behaviors in a way by by saying that by sort of undermining the credibility of um, of our sort of government tutor. Right? <laughs> Clearly, our government tutor is flawed. And, and we should get away from using the government as our tutor. Um, but the lesson some people take is, you know, I'm just going to obey the law. And the lesson other people take is I'm just not going to obey any of it. And I'm just going to experiment. And it's, um, it's catastrophic because as long as you're not thinking about it individually in terms of what are the implications of this to me and the life that I want to lead, is it going to harm my productivity at work? Is it going to make it harder for me to focus? Is it going to undermine uh, my friendships? Is it going to undermine my social life. Um, these are the things that you need to take into account. And that just gets swept under the carpet when, the, when we replace all of that complexity, almost binary choice of government green light versus government red light. That's right. Yeah, and I will say, I think the, the free state community in New Hampshire has done a, a pretty good job of handling this. And, and you know, the there has to be a little bit of kind of social accountability here. And that's, that's what's happened because you do see as you would expect with any movement of this type, that's kind of very helpful, right? If you move to the state, people are going to show up and help you move in. You know, if you, if you're following hard times, right, people tend to help, help each other out within this movement, but some people, a handful of people over the years have, have moved in and try to take advantage of that. And so, what ends up working there is simply the the grapevine, right? That there has to be a little bit of, there's a social function to a, a moderate amount of gossip, you know, if you want to call it that, which is simply like, hey, watch out for this person, you know, they did X, X or Y. And, and that's the way we've kind of weeded out those sorts of bad apples that have tried to free ride on the, on the generosity and solidarity of the, of the liberty movement in New Hampshire. Yeah, this is another massively underrated uh, mechanism for the enforcement of social norms and behavior, which again is almost um, completely flattened in the realization or, or in the understanding of a statist, because again, everything is either green light from the government or red light from the government. But in reality, 
Uh, I mean, simply shunning somebody is massively destructive for their uh, survival. In fact, I mean, before today's modern economy where you can just order things online, you could you could die if you lived in a small town and then everybody in that town was extremely angry at you for doing something extremely wrong. You know, if you committed a murder, for instance, even if nobody f- had the ability or the power or the uh, desire to go and actually punish you with a death sentence, simply by choosing to just not trade with you, not buy anything you produce and not sell anything to you, that could effectively be a, a death sentence. And you, you could starve, you know, if you're isolated away from the uh, division of labor, you're back into primitive nature on your own and that's not an easy uh, not an easy task to face it's something that could be extremely destructive for people and it's what forced people to behave that's why social norms matter so much because you could get shunned and that can be a problem it'd be ideal if we were all motivated by virtue for its own sake but in in the absence of that being motivated by our reputations within our social community is, yeah, an important uh, sort of check on bad behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit more about Porkfest. What's the story with Porkfest? Well, Porkfest is basically uh, a week-long free society, right? So <laughs> you come to Porkfest and you see a microcosm of what a free society would be like. Uh, yes, there's there's commerce. There's Agora Alley is the name of the sort of uh, section of the campground where uh, a lot of the commerce takes place. But the reality is it takes place all over uh, the campground. Uh, usually about 3,000 people come to Porkfest. Uh, the, the campground itself has capacity to host about, about 2,000 on site, sleeping on site. And I've just heard that it's, it's completely sold out for this year. Uh, so if you wanted to tent on site, you're not going to be able to do that. But you can stay off site, drive uh, to Porkfest. Um, it's a beautiful location. It is uh, in Lancaster, New Hampshire, just north of the White Mountains. And it has panoramic views of the White Mountains to the south. It's just a, a relaxing time if you want it to be, but also an amazing kind of hothouse of, of ideas and conversations and yeah, the, a lot of a lot of Bitcoin is used in commerce. Also, gold and silver are used in commerce. Fiat money is definitely deprecated. Um, you will find activities for for families, as I mentioned, all sorts of um, subculture talks and events, and sort of um, kind of experiments, trying things out. Some people have called it the Libertarian Burning Man. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a little bit of that. But again, I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like a some sort of bacchanal. It's uh, it's actually what what you want to make of it. And there's a there's a kind of private zoning on the campground. So if you're if you're there with kids, there's a there's a family section, there's a playground, and there's a, a full calendar of events for them. If you want to be right in the center of commerce, there's Agora Alley. And there's also kind of an adult section where you know people. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll experiment with other things. So, you know, so if that's your speed, you can find that as well. And there are talks. So we've got um, this year, uh, my organization, the American Institute for Economic Research, will be sending some speakers. Uh, I know the Brownstone Institute will be there. Uh, so there, there are talks as well. Um, some people just never go to the talks. They're, they're too busy talking to people and, and having fun. 
um, but it is a it is a good intellectual environment as well as a, as a chance to see what a what a free society would really look like for a week out of the year. Nice, yeah, and I th- I've um, I've heard from many many early Bitcoiners got into Bitcoin because of Porkfest and because of the Free State Project. A lot of uh, fond memories of people buying baklava for like three bitcoins or something like that <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> in two thousand eleven. Yeah. yeah, very early on. You know Mandrick? Oh, yeah. He's uh-huh. on uh, Twitter. He's always got stories about the things that he bought and sold at Porkfest for what would today be a fortune in Bitcoin, but was pocket change back then. That's right. And and many, many stories, as you might imagine, of people who got Bitcoin at Porkfest back in those early years and then forgot their password or lost their key or whatever. And, and so, yeah, so for, fortunes lost <laughs> and fortunes made, you know, a lot of Bitcoin businesses uh, have started out of Porkfest and the Free State Project community in New Hampshire. So, so that's been gratifying to see. Um, but I, I should mention the the website, by the way. Uh, it's porkfest.com, P-O-R-C-F-E-S-T.com. So if any of your listeners want to uh, to check it out, you really have to go there at least once in your life just to, just to see it because uh, there's nothing else on earth like it. Yeah, it's something that I've uh, wanted to visit for a long time, but I've never been there. I basically became a libertarian toward the end of my time in the U.S., and so then it's uh, been a little bit of a long trip to try and get there. But one day, one day, I'm yeah, sure. I mean, definitely. it looks like you guys are just going to get bigger and bigger with time. I think more and more can people continue to move. So far, I think the last I heard, you had 6,000 people move to New Hampshire, right? Or 6,000 plus people is the total number of people who have moved because of the Free State Project? There are 6,000 plus Free Staters in New Hampshire. I don't know how that breaks down in terms of movers versus people who are already here and got kind of activated and decided to sign up. Uh, but definitely thousands of movers to New Hampshire. Uh, we've got something like 30 people who are movers uh, who are in the state legislature, who've been elected to the state legislature, one one state senator and, and a number of, of state representatives. So there's a big contingent in the legislature. And there's a larger sort of libertarian contingent uh, in the state house as well. So there's there's a, a basically a, now a, a big political coalition that is always relevant on every vote. Uh, that is uh, the the Liberty Coalition, and so everyone has to take that into account. And that's a that's a big factor in terms of creating that legal environment for freedom in the future. Yeah. So how does I mean how was your approach? Do you how do you see your approach focusing between? On the one hand, building a community of like-minded, liberty-minded people who, I mean, I, I definitely see a lot of value in that, as I was mentioning earlier in the case of Bitcoiners. I think just, um, you know, more important than whether you want to be around weed smokers or not is the fact that you want to be around people who accept uh, the concept of freedom around those things and accept non-aggression. So it's, it doesn't matter so much whether they smoke or they don't. What matters is that we all agree that we're not going to pull guns at each other because of whether we smoke or we don't. I think this is really the important thing. So I and I can see the value from that purely, even even as somebody who's completely cynical of the uh, political process, I can see the value in that. But how much do you think it's about that versus the political process? Because you, you are also active politically. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I myself am part of the the more political wing that's very active politically, but we also have a lot of free staters who are not very active politically at all. And so you can get active in media. We have a lot of a lot of podcasters and a lot of journalists um, in in the FSP. You can get active in, in education, homeschooling. We have a number of activist centers around the state. Um, so these do things like um, host homeschool co-ops. They they also sometimes rent rooms to to, to new movers. Um, they host sort of parties and events. They can also be places where where people can can broadcast from, hold debates and things like that on on philosophical and political issues. Uh, so you can get active in any of that. You can get active in entrepreneurship and farming, right? We have we have some free state farms out there, and some people, you know, buy their buy their meat from from these farms. And and we have marketplace uh, days uh, in Manchester, uh, the largest city in New Hampshire. So uh, so people bring their wares. So there are lots lots of ways to get involved in the liberty community and be part of that community without being politically active. I myself, as I as I stated earlier, I think there there has to be a political side to this that 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 mere economics, agorism, technology is not going to to create that free society. I fully understand cynicism about the the political process. It's extremely difficult to get things done, and and, and that's true anywhere. And at the end of the day, democracy is often a, a <laughs> yields really dumb, really stupid decisions. But I will say in New Hampshire, it pays off. Our political system is very accessible. We have 400 state representatives. That's one for every 3,500 people in the state. Almost uh, two thirds of our tax burden is actually decided at the town level. So if you get active in your town and some of our towns have a couple hundred people to a couple thousand uh, and up, um, those towns... Uh, decide about two thirds of our tax burden is property tax, and so you can have a big impact there. Those towns make their decisions typically by direct democracy, so you will directly be voting on legislation. You can propose legislation. So if you get active, you can make a difference. You gotta you gotta go about it in a smart way. You've got to be neighborly. You've got to be focused on the good of your community. Some people don't have patience for that. For the kind of interfacing with non-libertarians that you're going to have to do to be effective. And I get that. Uh, but other people do. And uh, the idea is that if we both work on getting the legal environment right, at the same time as we're creating alternatives to government provision and, and government action, we're going to end up with a with a freer society. And, uh, and we already have. And so that's um, that's something that I don't think exists anywhere else on earth, maybe Liechtenstein but not everyone can, can move to Liechtenstein. We're going to, we're going to make a difference. This is going to be huge for the United States and for the world that we have a single free state. Yeah. So what is, what is the kind of long game here? So we've discussed some of the strategies and I, you know, I, I commend you for not being uh, extremely gung-ho and high time preference about wanting to just get this over with in a few months. It's obviously a very long-term project and I like that. Where do you see this going? So let's say more and more, tens of thousands of uh, more libertarian-minded people move to New Hampshire and more of the local population of New Hampshire begins to see the light in terms of the beauty of the idea of non-aggression and respect for property rights. So then what? I mean, do you consider 
taking this all the way to secession away from the union or more federalism, less, uh, you know, maybe reducing federal taxes or what do you see as the kind of uh, more uh, long-term goals? Yeah. So some free staters and, and libertarians in New Hampshire support secession. So they want a Republic of New Hampshire that is independent from the U.S. There is constitutional support for that. The New Hampshire Constitution explicitly protects the right of secession. Uh, it's, I think, one of only two state constitutions that does it. I think Virginia's might have similar language as well. Uh, and so that that is a kind of avenue that some people are pursuing. I think that that certainly right now, given the political environment in the state, that is not a, a political winner. If you think of that as a long-term goal, um, maybe that's, that uh, is more plausible. But I, I prefer to talk about New Hampshire self-government. And so that involves bringing powers back from the federal government. I don't think New Hampshire needs an army. I don't think New Hampshire needs a diplomatic corps to be a member of the United Nations. But I would like to get out from under federal taxes from the alphabet soup agencies. And I think we can do that one by one by negotiating for greater autonomy. And this is something that's happened in Canada that Quebec has been able to do. Uh, they've been able to get control over uh, immigration uh, because they pressured the federal, the federal Canadian federal government for that. I think we can, we can do that. We can do that uh, both through state legislation. So we can say, we're not gonna cooperate with the feds. We're not gonna cooperate with say the SEC. Right, which has been doing a lot of crazy stuff to some of our New Hampshire businesses lately. We can then use our federal representatives to push for our interests in, in Congress. And then finally, is it so far-fetched that maybe 30, 40 years down the road, or maybe even sooner, we end up with a majority on the Supreme Court that actually wants to enforce constitutional limits on the federal government? Because remember, the federal constitution actually doesn't let the federal government do very much it was the uh, the FDR pact court uh, uh, changed that that historic understanding. And is it plausible that under uh, a future Supreme Court we could we could undo that, especially if there's a state out there that's raising a ruckus and is willing to sue the federal government, is willing to not cooperate with the federal government in order to get that that self government that we need to promote our own society and our economy? And I think that that could very well happen. So uh, we don't need our own army. We don't need our own diplomatic corps. We can be a, a self-governing, autonomous state uh, in New Hampshire. And that's, that's the, that is a long-term goal. It's not going to happen in the next five or 10 years, in my opinion. It'd be great if it did. But I'm, I am, as you said, in this for the long run. This is a generational strategy for liberty in our lifetime. You know, our, our kids and grandkids will reap the benefit. Hopefully I do before I die. But this is, uh, this is what, you're, what you're in for, right? We are trying to turn the ship of history uh, away from this trend toward the welfare state, the regulatory state, the nanny state, bigger government. That is, that is a huge effort, but we have a lever now that gives us um, significant advantage over where we were before the Free State Project. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I obviously agree with you. I don't think you guys need the SEC or I don't think anybody needs any of these um, agencies. Anything that they do that's useful can be done voluntarily on the market. But, you know, you don't need them, but they need you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they're not there to serve you. You're there to serve them. Uh, without you, they don't have their jobs. They don't have their power. They don't have all of the favors that they can give out to their corporate sponsors. 
um, which get them fancy jobs once they exit the revolving door between the regulated and the regulator. It, it sounds great in principle, but like, what do these federal agencies think of this? I, I mean, I'm sure they've heard about it and they can see that it's not the most conducive strategy to their ends, which is, you know, grow the bureaucracy more and more, hire more and more people, um, give us more money and more power. Uh, so how, how how did you see them reacting? First of all, so far, like how has been, how has the reaction been so far from federal government agencies? And how do you see this um, reaction intensifying over time if the project continues to pick up speed? Yeah. Well, you you and your listeners may have heard of the Libri case, LBRY, our, our uh, former Free State Project chief executive, Jeremy Coffin, is also CEO of, of Libri and Odyssey, which is a privacy-focused, um, supposed to be censorship-proof video platform. And uh, the SEC went after Libri, and they did so because of the use of tokens, crypto crypto tokens and the Libri token um, in the in the platform. And uh, and they lost Libri lost that case. So Odyssey is safe, but Libri, as I understand it, is is declaring bankruptcy as a result of that case. So yeah, the SEC um, has been coming down hard on crypto in general, I think. And this is just one example of it. You know, the, so, the, so we, we do face a, a real challenge here. And how do we deal with that challenge? I mean, I, I think one of the things that we have seen the kind of model for the future is the model that, that's happened through marijuana legalization, right? So the DEA doesn't like marijuana legalization one bit, but they don't have the resources to enforce federal drug laws everywhere. And so if states legalize marijuana, federal government has largely been leaving them alone and instead putting pressure on things like financial institutions, but it hasn't been able to stop it. The federal government is dealing with major financial issues, and this, these are only going to increase if their money printing ability goes away, as, as you're predicting safe, uh, and as I hope is true. And as the, the federal government continues to, to rack up huge debts and unfunded liabilities as a result of uh, these retirement programs that are, that are going bust, Medicare and Social Security. So the federal government is going to be, become more and more resource constrained in the future. That's going to do, uh, limit their ability to do enforcement in the absence of state cooperation. So if we have a state that does not cooperate with the feds, that is going to limit the federal government's effective ability to enforce its laws in that state. And so who knows where this goes, but I think a combination of political pressure, judicial holding the line, um, and just non-cooperation and the weakness and fragility of the federal government, the fact that it's, its capacity to en enforce its laws is simply going down, that is going to help us uh, build that free state, even though I'm completely positive that a lot of these federal bureaucrats absolutely do not want uh, to, to see that outcome. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously quite sympathetic. Um, playing devil's advocate here, I mean, ultimately, you're kind of counting on state governments being able to stand up to the federal government. And the problem here is that on the one hand, the states don't have a money printer, whereas the federal government does, even just on the basis of taxes. I mean, state taxes are pretty low compared to federal taxes. And in particular, you know, the more freedom oriented the state becomes, the less taxation and less resources it has. 
which feel dirty saying it, but uh, <laughs> might compromise its effectiveness at taking on the uh, federal government to try and pass these things. I mean, I I, I, I hate making the case for why uh, you would uh, want more taxes, but let's. I'm not, but I'm just saying. Uh, I, I guess the way I'd put it is that. Uh, the way politics is going, even if there's problems for the government, it's likely that the government, the federal government will react by lashing out and consolidating power rather than um, ceding it. Yeah. And I don't want to claim the Free State Project is a, is a foolproof strategy. I simply believe it is the most effective strategy. So we, we need at least one state. And New Hampshire is the, is the logical choice. And we now have thousands of, of libertarians there. And, uh, and so we've, we've been making a difference here. So that, that's part of it, is that we need an activist base that's, that's going to, to push the state to do this. The other part of this is that, you know, libertarian nerds tend to sweat the small stuff on some of these issues that matter for economic development that are not high-profile ideological issues. Things like occupational licensing and asset forfeiture and zoning regulations and things like that, that most people aren't paying attention to that are not hot button left, right, culture war issues. Those are the sorts of issues where free staters and libertarians are getting active and making a difference. If we can build an economy that is much stronger because we've swept away a lot of those regulations, that's going to raise our revenues, even if our tax rate is, is really low. So that's that's a potential strategy here for attracting the kind of investment we need uh, to to build our capacity as a state. Okay, excellent. All right, anybody else have questions they'd want to ask? Well, while he comes on, I'll 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 ask you my next question. Well, what do you think of the concept of why New Hampshire in the U.S. versus going somewhere else? So we hear projects about people trying to set things up in Central America. And, uh, you know, you're kind of in the U.S. sphere of influence pretty much anywhere on the face of Earth. The U.S. government is basically the world government at this point. But you're kind of too close to the beast if you're in the 50 states. It's a little bit more complicated. So, you know, you look at some of the uh, projects that uh, spring up, like Free Cities Foundation and these other projects – they can. Um, they have the idea that you know somewhere where you go to a country with a small government, because not because of libertarianism, but small because of dysfunctional uh, lack of revenue and no currency to use to debase society. It's easier to maybe negotiate with them, easier to bribe them and let them leave you alone. You could take a piece of land and develop it and pay them a small amount of tax and. Uh, They'll be happy to let you have your libertarian uh, utopia. I mean, you could just essentially market it as a luxury tourist uh, resort. Um, but in practice, it could end up being something like a free state project. So what are your thoughts on that, um, yeah. doing it inside the U.S. versus outside the U.S.? I mean, this is something I, I thought about when, when coming up with the idea. Um, I, I believe it needed to be an English-speaking location uh, for maximum recruitment because that's where the, a lot of the libertarian movement is. It's in the Anglosphere. And if you look at smaller jurisdictions outside the U.S., they tend to have extremely strict immigration and citizenship requirements. So, for instance, polities in the, in the Caribbean. Um, so you're not going to be able to have the kind of impact there. The other thing I would say is, you know, and I have been active in the in the free cities movement, so to speak, right? I've done a lot of these conferences. I've, I've traveled to 
Honduras to see some of this um, you know, activity on the ground. And I will say that the problem with these more dysfunctional governments is that they are unpredictable and you can't get a, a solid legal framework. You know, one government loses power, the next government comes in, they'll just abrogate whatever the last government did. And that's, that's what happened in Honduras. Uh, so I think, you know, the U.S. also has its own sort of dysfunction, but it's a dysfunction that leans towards stasis uh, and not towards wild swings of, of authority and, and change. So, so I think that benefits us, actually, that all the checks and balances in the U.S. government. And, and if they're immobilized, that's great. <laughs> uh, we can be mobile. So I, I you know, I, I hope that the free city idea works. I hope that the seasteading idea works. They all seem extremely vulnerable to the arbitrary and unpredictable decisions of a particular political actor, uh, right? So a seastead, you invest, you know, hundreds of millions or billions in, in, into creating a seastead. And then, you know, some, some nearby government tries to take it over, uh, right? So there's, there's uh, a, lot, a lot of risk there and it's very hard to scale. Whereas the Free State Project is something that scales very easily. It's already scaling, right? So we're, we're, getting we're booking wins already and creating more freedom already and then we can just build from there and so it's a it's more of a of a proven model that said if you're the sort of globetrotting more risk acceptant type of person who really wants to take the moonshot by all means go for it um i just think that the free state project is probably going to be more accessible to the vast majority of people out there Excellent. All right, Chris, you have a question for Jason? Yes, thanks, uh, Jason and Safe. So I'm a, a long-term follower of the project, and I remember during the initial formation, it was narrowed down between Wyoming and New Hampshire as the final two that were voted upon as far as locations. And it, it seems like perhaps the proximity to very liberal Massachusetts bleeding into New Hampshire may be causing it to New Hampshire not to become as libertarian as quickly. Maybe that's an incorrect perception, but my questions are, are you still happy with the choice of New Hampshire over Wyoming? And would you consider a second location out West, perhaps Wyoming, or would that thin the herd too much and defeat the project? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with, with how it's gone. And, uh, and just a, a slight correction, the way it, it worked was we, we narrowed down to 10 states, and then everyone was able to rank those 10 states. Then we picked the Condorcet winner, which ended up being New Hampshire, but Wyoming was the second place uh, state in that vote. So I, I think the, the advantage of New Hampshire is the fact that, first of all, it, it wasn't, we weren't picking a place to, to take over because it was a state that already had this kind of libertarian culture. The governor invited us. So we could say authentically, hey, we're just making New Hampshire more of what it already is. The, the, the second point I'll make is the political system is extremely accessible there. And the, the small land area actually makes it easy for libertarians to organize because we, we're all within at most a two hour drive of each other, but most of us within a one hour drive of each other. And so that makes it really easy for us to, to get together, to share ideas, to sort of create a create a scene, if you will, where you know we're all trying out our own things, we're observing each other's successes and failures, and we're learning from that. Whereas in Wyoming, it would have had to be much more kind of siloed in the individual parts of the state. And then finally, I'll say that you know the the perception is that oh, New Hampshire is going blue, but.
But if you look at where New Hampshire is relative to the country and in, in presidential vote share, it has not ticked blue at all since something like 1996 uh, or maybe 2000. Since then, it's been pretty much a, a very purple state. It's just that Republicans haven't won the, the popular vote in nationally since 2000. And as a result of that, you know, New Hampshire also, like the rest of the country, is registering narrow wins for the Democrats. But the state level, Republicans have been in power for a long time. Uh, they've held at least one branch of state government since, I want to say, 2010. So, and, uh, and right now, they're, they're still holding on to a trifecta in state government. So we've been able to do a lot with the more conservative free market economic policies uh, during that time. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I really don't think that has been a negative. And we have some advantages, actually, from being a purple state, because on some issues, we can kind of situate ourselves in the middle and then make ourselves biddable to both sides. Excellent. Well, um, sure. what are your thoughts in general um, to kind of conclude? What are your views on the use of Bitcoin for the Free State Project? I mean, yeah, I know people use it at WorkFest at there's the uh, five Bitcoin baklavas and so on. But as a kind of long-term strategy, do you see it being um, specifically helpful in any particular way other than just offering people what Bitcoin offers them? Does it serve the project in a kind of long-term uh, vision? I think it does. So for financial freedom, for freedom from surveillance, um, those are, I think, some of the most important features of Bitcoin. I do want to get rid of central banking long term. Now, that's got to be one of those kind of long term goals. But um, Bitcoin is one of the possible solutions there um, that that people are are using to kind of hedge inflation to get away from the inflation of the dollar um, and to create a, a way of engaging in transactions without the government necessarily being able to to watch them. And so that is again, a sort of fail-safe last resort here for, for people to, you know, to, to find a way to, to live, to carry on business, even if um, the government tries to go after them. And so we have people in New Hampshire who've, who've lived on crypto. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have a lot of Bitcoin uh, businesses. It's very hard to go into a, just a normal free state or owned business, a restaurant or, a, or an inn, and not find a, a Bitcoin ATM. Um, so if, if Bitcoin is going to make a difference anywhere, I think New Hampshire is is one of the places where it's it's going to take off. Yeah, I, I definitely hope so. Um, uh, Mandrick, a friend of mine, has uh, given me a soft spot for the Free State Project, and uh, I think he's given a lot of uh, Free Staters a soft spot for Bitcoin too. That's there's right. an enormous overlap between the two groups, and uh, as we said, I think there's a very overlapping goals that both have. I think they're very complementary approaches as well. I don't think it's a matter of uh, no, your approach is useless. No, your approach is useless because I think they both complement each other very well. And if Balaji is right about where Bitcoin is going, we're going to have a lot of free state or millionaires out there. So that'll be great <laughs> for the cause. Yeah, I think, I think, I think he's uh, he's getting a little um, ahead of himself. Uh, yeah, I, getting I way so. too excited. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's just. I mean, when when you first understand how banking and central banking work you come to the immediate realization, all right, it's all going to fall apart next week. 
add. I mean, I think he spent a lot of time in Bitcoin, but he's spent a lot more time in shitcoins and then yeah. um, <laughs> doing all kinds of things that would suggest that his grasp of the true implications of Bitcoin was not quite at the revelatory stage <laughs> until yeah. a few weeks ago. So I, 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 uh, I wouldn't bet the house on. Uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't either. Everything falling apart in the next three months. <laughs> But I think the long-term perspective is, I, I think, is unmistakable. I mean, it's just, um, on the one hand, you've got a system that's built to generate more and more inflation over time versus a system that's built so that we don't generate more inflation. And I think this is um, this is likely going to continue to be the case for a while. And so, you know, the more people get on Bitcoin, the more they are able to achieve their goals, whatever those goals may be. And the Free State Project, hopefully, is one of those goals. So best of luck to you and everybody involved. Uh, we'll be following uh, with uh, keen interest. And I think you'll you'll likely start getting more and more Bitcoiners uh, uh, over time. I think all the talk of Citadel's um, yeah, uh, it's a lot of it has been uh, sci-fi to an extent, and a lot of it is uh, a little over ambitious in the sense, you know, we're going to take over a part of the world that's completely deserted and build a civilization. And I think, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to start a town. It's yeah. a, you know, the, the infrastructure uh, is something that's just not very easy to pull off, and the politics and all of that stuff. And a U.S. state is. I mean, you've already got the building blocks of a civilized society there. And you've got globally, I mean, say what you want about the U.S. government still. People in the U.S. still have the right to own guns and they have the right to do a lot of things that many people around the world don't have the right to do. And as you said, I think the, the, the key point is e even the bad things at least are relatively certain. There's a lot less uncertainty in the U.S. than there is in other places and sometimes you know going with the predictably bad thing is better than taking a chance on an unknown thing because an unknown thing can there's some wisdom in that for being, sure yeah absolutely well thank you Saif. I, I really appreciate this opportunity thank you so much it's a pleasure talking to you and i uh, would love to have you all over again uh, hopefully when you've taken over the state government <laughs> that would be great <laughs> all right. cheers have a good day you too bye bye, -bye.